My 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 Transylvanian cackles seem to be peaking, so I've just I've just sorted oh. that. Huh. Huh. Very few things that you say naturally are as loud as your Transylvanian cackles. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. You do pull out all the stops for it. <laughs> one of the things I've always appreciated about you. Huh. I would watch this film. <laughs> Imagine yeah. if the only way you could be loud is by doing the Transylvanian <laughs> voice. Watch out, there's a bus coming. <laughs> Help me! I'm being mugged. <laughs> well, all right, mate. I'll leave, I'll leave it. Oh, thank God for that. <laughs> you want me? Oh, thank God for that. <laughs> all right, then. Run, Jimmy! Run! You're doing excellently. You can win. <laughs> Go, Team Britain! Oh, mate, my, my dad was just like that. Also, could only yell in Dracula voice. <laughs> It's a condition. It's uh, it's underappreciated, underreported, under misunderstood. Yeah. It's only because it's only because the medical establishment is staffed by non-Draculas, so <laughs> they're just not interested in uh, Dracula-related problems. They're not, and they're ill-equipped to deal with them. Mm-hmm. As a wheel. Yeah. Wolf of Banana, it's Jenna, the film critic. <laughs> Give that wolf! <laughs> uh, a Screen Mayhem podcast. My name is Jen Blundell, and with me, as always, is my film critic who has eaten too much chicken, Paul Salt. I'm Edgar Allan Paul. There's <laughs> yeah. two very obscure Eurovision references, everyone. I hope, that you'll, I hope that you'll follow us in this journey, and if not, might be the time to click on a different podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is going to be a very Eurovision-focused episode. It is the first episode since the contest. Mm-hmm. And, um, the contest. I referenced the, the song from last year, so... Um, That's true. That's a good um, start. Yeah, Norway was robbed. Norway was robbed. Hashtag but Norway was robbed. Norway was robbed, but if those bloody jury members think that that's going to stop the spread of her wings, then they haven't been paying attention. No. No. Play high, whatever your name was from Norway. Your song was great. The song was great. Song you was are great. the Queen of Kings. I don't need to know you by yeah. any other name. Yeah. Is it too late to pivot this show to just talking about Eurovision and just reviewing Eurovision once a year? <laughs> That's what it should be. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, we do have to contractually speak about some films. We made that contract with Dracula. We did, and he's not going to be happy. Or maybe he will be. It's hard to tell. It's, it's hard, hard to tell, tell when sometimes. he's shouting all the time. <laughs> he has to, or you can't hear what he says. <laughs> it's a rich law that we've come up with. <laughs> Um, we do have uh, fewer films to discuss <gasps> this. Yeah, because we had, what, 15 last time? <laughs> some some, some very large number, yes. Yeah, so this this month this month it's 14. So, yeah. Okay. It was going to be 16. I didn't get to two of them. I was okay. too sleepy and full of chicken. <laughs> That's the trick, you see. If you get me more full of chicken, I will oh, see oh, fewer see. films. Oh, I see. You're blackmailing me. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to call it that? <laughs> Oh, buy your own chicken, Paul Salt. Damn it. People keep telling me that. And they warned me about it when I was at school. They said, one day you'll have to buy your own chicken. And I was like, no. No. I'll trick chumps into doing it. With these good looks. (laughs) With these looks. I'll have all the chicken I want and more. Oh, God. Well, we should probably start by talking about The Little Mermaid. The Little Mermaid. The Little Mermaid. I'll try not to drop the T's as I say. The Little Mermaid. The Little Mermaid. Little Mermaid, innit? Oh, lovely lass. Little Merwench. 
you know the story. There's an underwater kingdom ruled by King Triton, played by Javier Bardem, uh, but his his willful daughter, Ariel, played by Halle Bailey, um, is obsessed with the surface world and just wants more. Mm. Then she meets a sea witch blamed Ursula, played by um, Melissa McCarthy, who grants her wish to experience the people above in exchange for her voice. Only she must achieve a true love kiss with this guy she likes within three days, or she shall become a mermaid again in the surface of Ursula. Mm-hmm. Also, she can't remember that she has to do this, so her friends have to kind of trick her into it. Her friends okay. being a crab, a fish, and a seagull. Of course. Standard of standard course. posse. Standard. Standard. It's the kind of crew I used to roll with. Um, this is, to some extent, exactly what you would expect. For the most part, this is the same as all the other live adaptations of the Disney mm-hmm. you know, classics. Everything good about it is taken whole from the original, but duller and less expressive. And everything new is kind of bad, especially the visual style, which is muddy and unfocused and incredibly lackluster comedy. It, I, I still can't get on board with the thinking behind these of just, we've got these incredibly bright, beautiful, you know, 90s animated movies. Let's make them duller and more photorealistic so mm. that they are therefore significantly less expressive mm. and less is being communicated by every frame. Never understood that rationale. Nevertheless, here we are. And I'm sure this is going to be one of the highest grossing films of the year again. Um, I kind of knew we were in trouble with this when the two big hit songs of the film landed with a thunk in the room. I saw this on a busy bank holiday Monday. And yet, you know, the Disney Renaissance films always have two songs that are guaranteed to go well with the audience. The Mm. villain song and one banger that they kind of include in there. You know, you think of like Prince Ali from Aladdin or, um, you know, Be Our Guest. From yes. Beauty and the Beast. Like the the big one, you know, yeah. the main one, Kuna Matata from or Circle mm. of Life, even. Mm. I think Lion King has a few. Hans Zimmer was involved. Mm. Um <laughs> and who wrote the songs for Lion King again? Was it Rice? Tim Rice. I think so. Yeah. Um <clears throat> but yeah, the two big songs of uh, The Little Mermaid are therefore obviously Poor Unfortunate Souls, the villain song, mm-hmm. and Under the Sea. Mm. Under the Sea, one of the most upbeat songs ever written for a Disney film, surely really should hit hard and yet both just felt tired and out of place and really abrupt when suddenly the do 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 cuts in and it's like mm. wow this was not <laughs> the groundwork was not laid for True. this to suddenly happen um and visually as well as audibly it's just out of place um yeah however ariel sells her voice and family for a pair of legs and a chance to romance a man she doesn't know and after she does that I did find myself having some fun. The production design for the castle and the village where she ends up are very attractive and the props that um, occupy the space as well. It bespeaks, to be honest, the slightly awkward concept of a absolutely flawless interplay between European powers and Caribbean culture, which extends to the people because obviously they want multiracial casting. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like we want inclusion. We don't want it to just be a white imperial power, you know, in the middle of this tropical island, but we don't also want to get rid of that entirely and just have a native you know jamaican people mm. which itself is a complicated notion so instead we have this idea that just on this one island colonialism worked really well <laughs> progressive and peaceful society came out of it and it's a beautiful thing and an example of equality that we wow. should all aspire to well, so sure. i mean you could perhaps argue that the underwater kingdom is standing in for the indigenous people but that doesn't hold up very well either once you start thinking about it so it's best not to think about it it's a children's Mm. film set in a wonderful colonial fantasy place with fish people (laughs) if you keep remaking stuff politics will never move on (laughs) but once we're out of the the water 
the film becomes a romance story rather than a sort of big spectacle movie. Mm. It's two people, the whole premise, the story. It's a big budget film, and yet everything is about these two characters getting to know each other, allowing the two lead performers um, to build up some actual chemistry and character. It is sinister that Ariel doesn't speak in this sequence. It always has been, but, you know, fine. Yeah. It's easier to fall in love with a girl when she can't talk. We all know this. <laughs> <laughs> she just shuts up for a minute. Am I right, lads? <laughs> again, again, problems with adapting things in the 90s exclusively. Anyway. Yeah. But it's basically two attractive people exploring a beautiful place and looking at each other. And that's all it needs to be. And it's interesting because, you know, if you were to throw in some good dialogue, this would be like a golden age Hollywood movie. Mm. Um and then you get the one song that did actually land and felt natural in the moment and fun, and it was Kiss the Girl. Mm, okay, cute. Actually worked and had nice staging, <clears throat> even if it is, you know, borrowed pretty much entirely. Mm. Then Ursula attacks and it gets big and noisy and generic again. Apparently we do have some original music in here. The only part of which that stood out is a rap song called The Scuttlebud, uh, mm. which doesn't necessarily stand out for the right reasons, but is recognizably Lin-Manuel Miranda. Okay. Um, his, he who did the extra work, so you, you may be put in mind of better work. Um, Aquafina's uh, vocal performance in this movie is um, sometimes challenging. <laughs> I like Aquafina <laughs> a lot. Aquafina playing? Aquafina's <laughs> playing uh, the seagull. Oh, okay. I forget its yeah. name, but yeah. Oh, um, Spud, Scud, Scud, something like that. Yeah, right? something like that. It's yeah. um, it's a very onomatopoeic sounding name mm. for, the, for the voice being used. Um, nevertheless, the whole experiment just kind of rumbles on, taking very nostalgic, scuttle. But quite scuttle. That's it, because mm. it's the scuttlebird, is the gossip. Sure, anyway. yes, yeah, that makes it's, sense. It's, it's very well thought out by Lin Manuel yeah. Miranda, yeah. and uh, then absolutely built it out at you. Anyway, this whole experiment of taking very nostalgic but quite dated films and translating them very directly to live action, but with vis- duller visuals, mm. just continues to be an incredibly popular thing to do, and. I can see how from the perspective of someone who has never seen the original films, it may this film may seem very playful and cute because it's borrowing quite heavily from a very playful and cute film. Mm. But this still feels exactly as arbitrary and unnecessary as a shot-for-shot remake like Gus Van Sant's Psycho. It's just, there's no new perspective mm. or unique selling point here. And that, I think, is the only thing that has characterized the so far well-received um adaptations live action adaptations which i think are just um uh what's the name of the one with um angelina jolie as the sleeping beauty oh maleficent maleficent yeah the first one of those but they're not adaptations are they're sort of they're not really but that's the point they're like greater wider yeah uh, like wider universe stories aren't they that and the jungle book film which also dared to sort of question the premise of the original okay you know, and sort of do something new. Those are the best received of these, and they're the only ones that really had the guts to try and do anything. Otherwise, mm. you're just kind of like seeing, like with the Beauty and the Beast movie, like plasters being put on the places where the original premise is creaking and bending over the the weight of time, where suddenly what seemed romantic in 1991 suddenly seems a bit iffy. Yeah. And they just throw in little lines and dialogues and, you know, potentially lines... Uh, bits of action in order to try and address that and it just feels awkward and it's irritating so i think yeah if a cinema near you is putting on the original little mermaid you know it's definitely the superior choice so this one just two stars i think there were parts of it where it had me but it still doesn't justify any of this okay and i'm 
They must be running out now. I'm struggling to think of a Golden Age Hollywood movie they've not remade. Hercules? No, they haven't done Hercules. That would be a tricky one, Hercules. though, because that one's so... I don't know. How do you make a guy look that buff without it looking ridiculous, right? <laughs> well, we get Dwayne the Rock Johnson. I guess true. You just you do just make God. him not ridiculously buff. You just make him buff, buff. Oh, yeah, they haven't done Pocahontas. Do... That'll be a challenge. Yeah, that'll be a fun one. Um... God. I bet they won't address any of that, any of the problems with that. Oh, God no. Um, cowards get, will never. Back. They'd never do a Emperor's New Groove. I just want to see an actual llama get led around on set having to do acting for most of the film. <laughs> they don't use a CGI one. They get an actual llama. Yeah, an llama. actual llama, please. They put peanut... They, they, for that one, they decide to go low-tech and they put, yeah. like, peanut butter on his gums to get him to yes. talk, like Mr. Ed. Yes. Yeah. Beautiful. Hunchback. I haven't done Hunchback. That, again, is going to be a challenging one with the disability yeah. angle. Oh, you know what flashed through my mind? I saw... And I have no idea where I saw this, but recently, in one of the many countries I've been to in the last week... Humble brag. Um, <laughs> I saw a poster for a play of Hunchback Ooh. of Notre Dame. Wow. Not like a big West End thing. This was not like a West End thing. This was a play. And I just remember like walking past him and being like, huh? Because it was just the Hunchback was clearly just a guy. Did he have some paint on his face? And that was it. Like it was wow. clearly just a. Re- but then well, I was like, but how then do you do it? Yes, you just do the kind different. of like Cyrano of Bergerac way where you just, everyone says he's got a big nose. But well, you that's don't... what they did in the theatre. Yeah, For the movie, exactly. they still had to find an analogue because people suspend disbelief in a different way. So I think you'd exactly. have to still do exactly. something. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think a live action version of Hunchback would be difficult. That Look, there's some interesting stories that Disney's adapted <laughs> over the years. We well, got, indeed. It's kind of got away with them in the 90s way and making it cartoons. I'm not sure. Yeah. making them all live i think they've picked these ones to do first for a reason <laughs> yes well it's been going a long time now the jungle book remake was something like 2016 wow and maleficent was even earlier than that so mm. this this is a very old process and it's yeah. it's getting very old anyway it'll continue <laughs> to make money so i'm sure they'll continue to find ways to do it yeah. speaking of which fast x <laughs> fast x the 10th mm. installment in the world's most inexplicable film franchise i'm excited to hear what you think Oh, God. I'm not sure you're going to tell me. <laughs> Vin Diesel is Dominic Toretto, the increasingly hilarious-looking smooth man who <laughs> is challenged by a dangerous terrorist to a globe-trotting game of cat and mouse. Meanwhile, three members of the crew have been framed for a terrorist incident and must interact with London's seedy underbelly for help. Meanwhile, Dom must rescue a former acquaintance's aunt or something who has been kidnapped and is also going down a bad path. Meanwhile, Dom's wife Letty has been arrested and placed in a high-security prison where she meets former big bad Shalice Ferron, with whom she must work to escape from the prison. Meanwhile, Dom's brother Jacob is on the run with somebody's son. I don't know, I don't understand these movies, as they evade a bunch of hitmen. Meanwhile, a ridiculously large man hunts Dom and his family, playing the exact same character that Dwayne Johnson did back in the fifth movie, only this one Vin Diesel gets on with better. Meanwhile, Dwayne Johnson is back, and so is Jason (laughs) Statham in one scene each, and Helen Mirren is in danger, so they must team up again to prevent that from happening. Meanwhile, Brie Larson plays the daughter of the shadowy agency figure played by Kurt Russell in the previous film, and is somehow involved in all this. Meanwhile, these movies keep making money. It's... 
Mm-hmm. Very difficult to criticize simply because at this stage it does just feel like it's performing itself. Yeah. Including its own flaws. The formula is very simple. Established a gratuitously extended Toretto family because what they do is they keep introducing a villain, a, ce- a celebrity guest who was the big bad of that movie and then by the next movie they're part of the family and joining in at the barbecue which is kind of beautiful in its own way I guess but it just means that they have like 50 people here (laughs) at this party now yeah Uh, the the celebrity guest villain will have been some sort of relation of someone from a previous movie who vows vengeance against Dom and his family Mm-hmm. A series of set pieces occur, es- escalating in absurdity until the movie ends with something very, very stupid. And somewhere in there, there is a jailbreak and a racing sequence because this franchise used to be about street racing. 15 mm. years ago, it did. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, 20 years ago, it was about s- street racing. So, oh, God knows. Anyway. <laughs> This movie is apparently the first part in a concluding trilogy to the Fast Saga, and the unique way in which they have decided to make the story feel like it wants three entire two-hour-plus movies is by basically making a dozen underwhelming films at the same time and just kind of mixing them together. The pacing is nightmarishly jarring, and the focus is non-existent. The entire two-and-a-half-hour movie is basically three scenes from each of those premises I mentioned. Like those Gary Marshall celebrations movies like valentine's mm. day and it's just Mother's like day yeah introduce day. each storyline twist them a little have mm. another scene resolve them the end mm. and then after that the usual issues every character is the same and incredibly boring vin diesel is an incredibly uncharismatic leading man the comedic relief is occasionally borderline experimental in how bad it is bold <laughs> new things are done with language and the in the name of banter here and of course it's impossible to actually get invested in anything because nothing means anything least of all death so there's no sense of peril because gal gadot is back the only death that they have managed to actually stick in these things and she shows up in this movie and it's bizarre you, you literally cannot mm. die in a fast and furious movie uh, and the only real question is is it fun is it mm. stupid enough to be entertaining well it's not particularly inventive in its ridiculousness like there's nothing done here that you haven't seen in any of the previous nine films um we're gonna cover something that's a bit more innovative in its stupidity later on um mm. it's mostly just cars smashing into things in different ways uh there is a saving grace though there's a bright light to guide you through the macho mm-hmm. nonsense and egomania that typically fuels this franchise. How do you tell? You see, Vin was so worried that The Rock Johnson was going to upstage him, he accidentally let Jason Momoa get on set. <gasps> Big mistake. Yeah. Momoa is the villain in this, and he injects this movie with more life, humor, <laughs> and energy than this franchise has had in an actual decade. <laughs> he's painting the nails of dead guys, he's tenderly caressing guns, He's a big, beautiful man with a big, beautiful plan. And the first big name actor they've managed to convince to join this franchise who is actually having any fun. Mm. Obviously, Vin Diesel has now already started a feud with him because he cannot stand the idea of people being entertaining in these films. (laughs) Nevertheless, Maboa earns this movie its second star. It's two stars. Two stars. Okay, fine. See it for Maboa. Sure. (laughs) I've heard... uh, I've heard... uh... I think it depends on how much you enjoy very, oh very stupid films. I had fun. Like, but like the person yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. The person I saw it with informs me. I, I observed to her that um, the audience were quite good. They were laughing along. Okay, that's fun. And she told me, that's because you were laughing so loud. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else was kind of caught up along with it. And I was like, really? Was I? Yeah. 
You know I'm what? Not allowed I think laughing, you actually. But... I think Paul, did you actually love this film? <laughs> did you actually love this then film? Look, Paul? You can say it's a look, safe Jason space. Momoa made me feel things. And okay. Yeah, that's. I'm normal. not prepared to fully explore all of that, but suffice to say, it was it was fine. Fine. I can tell okay. you about a movie sure. I genuinely enjoyed, if you like. Yeah, go on. Let's talk about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three. <gasps> oh no, spoilers! I've heard uh, no spoilers. No spoilers. There'll be no spoilers I've heard there's feelings and I've managed to avoid all sorts of spoilers. <laughs> I've managed to avoid all of those so far. Yeah. <laughs> Just feelings full stop. <laughs> yeah. No, no spoilers. The, the Guardians of the Galaxy and James Gunn return to the MCU to deliver the very, the, the last very highly anticipated one of these for mm. a while, I think. Looking at the roster, I don't think there's anything in there that's going to get people as psyched as the final Guardians of the Galaxy film. Um, and as a result, it feels like the actual end to the original MCU era mm. for me, at the very least, because this, these movies started in phase two, way back in 2014, the Guardians movies. Oh, yeah. And I don't think there's anything as old that's still running. I know Ant-Man is technically phase two as well, and that just had a movie, but, and I think Doctor mm. Strange, but this, I, I don't know, there's something about Guardians that just feels like the original slew. You know, yeah, it it's came out. It was really interesting when it first came out. It was, it was and it really just felt exciting. like it felt because after the Avengers, which is still the movie that sort of I think solidified the whole thing. I really do think they were just curios before then. Mm. You know, isn't it neat that the new Hulk movie kind of plays into the new Captain yeah. America movie? And it's very easy to look back and sort of see how you know big that felt. But I really think they were just kind of passively received until the first Avengers came along and was somehow good. I remember yeah. that being such a big deal that it was good. That people liked it. It was mm. a miracle. Everyone expected it to be just a mess. Yeah. Um and then shortly after that, you had some of the most beloved movies of the whole thing. You had The Winter Soldier mm. and you had Guardians of the Galaxy and it just kind of yeah, yeah, it felt like it came from a very special place and now it's finished, so it does feel like an ending. So, yeah, the Guardians have all settled down in the city of Nowhere, which is inside the head of a big dead celestial, mm. where they are nursing various wounds. Uh, Peter Quill is resorting to alcohol because the woman he loved, Gamora, died, and then another version of her appeared with no knowledge of their prior relationship, because it was a different version of her. Mm. Um, Rocket Raccoon is experiencing flashbacks to his very traumatic origins. Mantis is exhausted trying to keep everyone together. Drax isn't very bright, and Groot's special <laughs> effects look weird. So everybody's got a lot going on. <laughs> They've all got a Relatable. lot going on. <laughs> you haven't My looked the same since. I've gone very well. I recently. preferred it when you were a puppet. I've got to yeah. say. It's just, I, I think it looked better. Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> Nevertheless, um, Adam Warlock shows up, played by Will Poulter. Um, he attacks in an attempt to capture Rocket, grievously wounding him in the process, mm. sending the gang on a quest to uncover his mysterious origins, uh, which involves the villainous high evolutionary, played by Chukwudi Iwuji. Uh, and save his life. So, the first Guardians movie was a big risk due to the relative obscurity of the characters, but mm -hmm. proved to be very rewarding as it's mm -hmm. become one of the most beloved installments in the franchise and one of S Steven Spielberg's favourite movies. Oh, wow. A reputation that was, I think, solidified by the second installment because the Guardians now seem to occupy an inter interesting position in the MCU as I feel the outsiders mm. in some way. And I think the geographical location of you know the characters in space allowed that to sort of happen yeah um it allowed this franchise to be relatively untangled from the <laughs> baggage of the overall saga mm. you know there was less interconnectivity there which i think helped it stand on its own two feet 
And indeed, they have struggled to hold on to that essential sense of character when appearing in other MCU movies. Mm. So even though this is, you know, one of the highest grossing franchises of all time, it still has this feel of being like the indie one mm. of its own group, the cool one that has good good music and a sense of style and identity to it so that, you know, I feel like it's less embarrassing to profess a fondness for the Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy than the other yeah. MCU <laughs> films. Um, for yeah. good reason. They are amongst the best ones that have been made in this franchise. So sure. It is a relief to see these characters back in the hands that crafted them one last time. Um, the dynamic between the group in humorous and dramatic moments just feels incredibly natural and and enjoyable. And in spite of all the talk of the actors wanting out, um, mm. which is natural at this stage, yeah. there is not a sense of it on screen. Uh, okay. Nobody's sleepwalking through the role. And newcomers like um, Iwaji and uh, Linda Cardinale as Lila the Otter in the same program as Otter, as Rocket was, um, are truly wonderful and bespeak the natural ease with which Gunn is able to create characters that just feel a part of this universe. Mm. Uh, the film provides a lot of closure, I think, uh, although whether it proves to be the end for any or all of these characters is somewhere between unsettled to unlikely. Um, there's a profound sense of seeing the end of a journey. And these characters are tackling the great unsolved dramas, you know, that are at the heart of their beings. And the story is going to some fairly dark places. There are sequences that invoke animal cruelty, parental abandonment, and really deep depression. Um, the weakest part of this for me is the breakup uh, sort of analogue between Quill and Gamora, because it's not really a breakup, it's, mm. you know, a death slash come back from a parallel universe thing. But... You know, it's complicated because it's essentially about grieving. Like, Peter needs to be grieving mm. for this person he's lost, but it's treated as this sort of comedic breakup narrative where Quill is the prophetic, you know, boyfriend who can't move on and makes awkward, you know, things to okay. come on to Gamora. It's a bit 90s sitcom, you know, especially him and his persistence of trying to get this person who has never met him to remember their relationship. Mm. Um, you know, it comes to a good place eventually, but the journey is a bit uncomfortable. Though it can be argued that it's just part of the rocky ride that this movie has you on. That element felt a bit more cliched and messy than the others sure. for me. Um, for the most part, the action is kind of uninvolving, um, as it tends to be in MCU movies, but the stakes are at least very clear. You always know what needs to happen and mm. you know, are hopeful that things will go the way they need to, um, even if the actual staging and realization is a bit generic. With one exception. There was an exciting little corridor fight that reminds you of how exciting action sequences can mm. be. There's one little bit that invokes the spirit of John Wick, and nice. you can just be happy about what you're seeing for a bit. You know, visually in general, the film is very striking and, you know, quite boldly, you know, it's quite bold, affecting a blend mm. of sort of Rick and Morty and Cronenberg inspired obscenity. Mm. There's a sequence set inside of an organic living space station that's quite memorable. Mm. Um, and then the smooth sheen of the MCU. Although Gunn does delight in tearing it down, as to be <laughs> said. Most of the time he'll introduce these sort of sci-fi cities and such and then just tear it to pieces and it's good yeah. fun. <laughs> it's an aesthetic of mess and chaos, which is very befitting the central drama mm. of the film. So yeah, I think it's fair to say that with that conclusion that he really stuck the landing with this one. Nice. Um, I, I'm going to give it four stars. I don't think it's quite up there with, um, with say, the first one of the sort of best superhero movies ever made, but it's sure. still a nice reminder of how good these films can be. Oh, great. That's nice. Yeah. Which mm. is important, because I don't know if we're going to see the end of them any, anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. If you had a franchise like this, you'd milk it for all it was worth too, Paul. I suppose so, if I was Mr. Kevin Feige. I don't yeah. know. I like to think I'd be like a, you know, one of those creatives who's like, nope, that's enough. Yeah. All done. 
out of here. Yeah. It looks like James Gunn has. Although now he's gone off to DC to do whatever he's going to do there. You'd have to get sick of superheroes eventually, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. Nolan did. Yeah. I can't think of anyone who has committed so much time to superheroes as James Gunn. Has anyone been at it for over a decade? I did walk past a poster... I did walk past a poster for The Flash being like, the best superhero movie. Oh, and I was God. like, so it's just so many superhero. I bet it's not. It's just it's been so it's many. Just, it Why has this become like it. its entire own? I enjoyed them so much at the start. Yeah. Yeah. You can harken mm. back to that early tens feeling. Yeah. That sheer excitement. But now you just hope that other things It's been made. so many produced in the past decade. That's it's wi- been it's wild. <laughs> and it's so wild to think that they all come from such a small group of studios. Because people yeah. like to draw comparisons to like the Western and say yeah. that. But Westerns were made by everybody. And the barriers to entry were so low yeah. that you could just make a Western with some money and get it screened in a theatre. You, you can't do that with superhero movies. We could movies. make a superhero movie, Paul. <sighs> we could try. Super we jam. could try. Yeah, I thought you'd be the superhero. Super Jen and the film critic. Super Jen and the film critic. (laughs) You know, join our Patreon and make it happen today. (laughs) Set up a Patreon for us and join it. And we will appear in Super Jen and the film critic. (laughs) Yeah. And the special effects are going to be inventive. Yes, absolutely. It's going to be Michel Gondry-esque, I think. I.e. made of whatever I can find. Yeah, it's going to be lots of camera angles and then... Mm -hmm. All of them, and then and then just a, a title card coming across the screen, being like, "And then she flew across the city." <laughs> oh, this is brilliant! This is actually engaging my imagination. Yeah, exactly. Imagine it yourself. It'll be, we'll we'll pitch it as educational for the kids. Yeah. Well, we're actually making you complicit in the imagining of the movie, mm. right? It's experimental. It's very oh, deep if you think yeah, about it's it. Very, it's but, very deep, actually, if you think about it. Yeah, but take our word for it. Don't actually think about it. <laughs> no, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, well, but, uh, do, do join Patreon. Yes. Not every film <laughs> is a superhero film. Some of them no. are Bo is Afraid. Bo is Afraid? Bo like is Afraid. Little Bo Peep? <laughs> Bo, B-E-A-U. Ah, Bo. Like, beautiful. Yeah. Well, it's a beautiful man played by Joaquin Phoenix. Oh. And yeah, this is the third. This is the third installment in the Ari Aster trilogy of movies I feel like I ought to like more than I actually do. Only perhaps with this third installment, I'm getting the impression that maybe I actually enjoy these the exact right amount. (laughs) (laughs) The story concerns Bo, who is afraid of everything. His neighborhood is terrifying. There's crime everywhere. There's a killer spider loose in his apartment building. And soon he must be pulled out of his discomfort zone in order to visit his mother, with whom he has a difficult relationship. Setting out on his journey, he encounters all manner of eccentric and dangerous people who force him to reconsider everything he knows about who he is. So, let's start with what works about the film. The film, incidentally, is three hours long um, and is very much, you know, a kind of indie movie. It's very much establishing Mm. that with its aesthetic. It's an alternative experience you're having. Um, where characters act in an eccentric way and you're very much made aware of the artifice Mm. of it. Um, That's right down to the marketing campaign. You know, the poster was this surrealistic image of Joaquin Phoenix playing every member of a little family. You know, it's it's definitely a film that's been designed to... 
Yeah, have a little look. It's, oh, it's... I have seen this poster around, yeah. but only like on the tube. So I'd get a glance and be like, is that what's going on? Well, yeah, oh, it's moving. going. Never mind. <laughs> it's going for the A24 effect of just sort of, you know, come see it because it's weird and it'll be, you know, a oh. weird experience, which is, I, I quite like that that's a marketing strategy that actually works. Um, yeah. But yes, let's let's look at what does work here because this film did have me along for the ride longer than other people I've spoken to about this. <laughs> um, the first act is fabulous, I think. It's this darkly comedic exaggeration of city life that has no pretense to realism. It's just savage and over the top, fighting and brawling in the streets. You know, homeless people chasing you down, trying to get into your apartment. Sure. If you leave any like window open for a second, you'll turn around and your apartment will be empty. Hilarious, you know. Mm. And Asta does use his obscene runtime to let these sequences kind of play out, building tension and gradually escalating the sense of horror to a fever pitch of societal chaos. Then he begins the journey, and the next sequence, this disquieting parody of well-meaning but hypocritical middle-class suburbia, um, you know, hope nobody here has seen Get Out, is um, <laughs> less engaging and hinges on this portrayal of a teenage girl that is a little, pro- well, it's quite problematic, but more on that later. Uh, the mm. same for a sort of, you know, ex-soldier. There's it's, there's issues going on here, but it's kind of justified in its own way. But that act of justification is part of the problem. Mm. Oh, I said more than that later and then just immediately addressed it in the next car- paragraph. Great. <laughs> Regarding the problematic portrayal of said teenage girl. I love not girl. waiting for too long. <laughs> this is perfect for me. <laughs> the suspense. I'd have been blanking you until you, t- you got back to this That's topic fair. Anyway. Let's, let's get back onto this weird, weird teenage girl. Who is, you know, very emotional, hates her parents, and is erratic and sort of um, Mm. suicidal in her own way. The film is unapologetically very clearly deeply subjective. I didn't realise I put very clearly deeply there, but it's very Mm. clearly deeply. Mm. Um, Truly madly deeply. Truly madly deeply subjective. And what we're experiencing is Bo's perspective Mm. in a hazy dreamlike narrative where, you know, masses of people on the street do appear like threatening mobs and teenage girls do appear to be these erratic monsters who are, you know, senselessly Mm. cruel and, you know, things like that. And I think the least interesting conversation about this film that can be had is what's real and what isn't because none of it is real and all of it is real it's all real to Bo it's like I don't know an abstract painting of his mindset so Mm. you know it's all as real as anything else is and it's all authentic to him and therefore to Ari Aster and you know the experience he's trying to create people who single this out as being unique or original can only you know must just be unfamiliar with the work of Charlie Kaufman Lars von Uh Trier or indeed Wes Anderson because this really plays as a blend of those three you know, handcrafted, deliberately artificial, brightly coloured fantasy world with gritty moments of violence feeling significantly less fresh and shocking than Astor's previous two works. It's not anything greatly new, it's just on a bigger scale, perhaps. Which is has value in and of itself, but you could quite comfortably reassemble this movie from other films, like Miracle Mile, Synecdoche, New York, and The House That Jack Built. Just stick these okay. things together and you can kind of make this movie. Joaquin Phoenix is very committed and is certainly put through the ringer and it's fabulous that he's up for it all. There's something mm. kind of fun about that when you see what the actor was prepared to do and you think, well, it's cute that you were in for, up for all this. <laughs> um, there we go. But it's very one note as a performance, as are all the performances. And frankly, so is the film. It's The things that have stayed with me are the things that are the less explicable moments. You know, Amy Ryan plays Grace, a kindly woman who takes Bo in, in that, you know, middle class parody Mm. second act um but there's something going on with her that i don't i can't explain in spite of how determined the ending of this movie is to explain everything that's happened to Bo. she warns him twice of what's being done to him but then later seems to just go along with things so there's this very mysterious going 
you know goings on with uh, with Grace, mm. um, and that's good. I like that. And the film needed far more mystery because bizarrely, for such a strange film, it's all just a tad too explicable. Okay, it just lays itself out in the third act as being about mother issues. Mm. That's basically it. You know, a controlling mum has ruined his sense of self. Okay. And that's kind of it. And it doesn't really suggest a solution to that or a way of coping with it or a particularly new insight into how it happens or mm. what the inf- impact of it can be. Sure. It's just, I don't know. I said at the beginning, I wanted to enjoy this movie. And I think it's just because it is a big budget. You know, this is the most expensive film A24 has made to date. Yeah. Independent film that is unusual and experimental and ambitious. But it's just all in service of a very familiar insight that men can feel smothered by their mothers. It can affect their confidence when they grow up. At the end of the day, for all its gimmicks and bravura and ambitions to mystique, Bo is just Principal Skinner. Oh. We've seen it all. And I just can't help but wonder, maybe it's time to start giving this kind of budget to people with some different perspectives. So Mm. it's two stars. It's slightly frustrating because it's like this great monument made to uh, and all these resources put towards someone with just nothing new to say mm. and although yeah, the style is cool it's just it's, it's there's nothing there yeah what uh what's the director's name what Aster? ari ari Aster. ari Aster. what's their previous films um they did hereditary and they did uh. um uh midsummer oh okay right yeah, yeah. Both mm. of which are better than this. Uh, I, I was very frustrated by Hereditary because I thought it was two-thirds a good film. Then it spent the third act getting incredibly silly and explaining <laughs> itself too much. Yeah. <laughs> um, Midsommar, I think, holds together as probably his best, I think. Mm. It's still... Because it's still too blunt. Like, the, the characters around um, Florence Pugh are meant to be, you know, these parodies of sort of the indifference of mm. men, of male toxic you know academic relationships and they're just so blunt when will polter plays a cartoon character Mm. in that movie and and jack rayner there's some nice little subtle moments of um of being a bad boyfriend from him Mm. but it's just too on the nose that's the thing of harry astor he's not a man who believes in subtlety okay interesting i don't know it's kind of frustrating he's a good stylist but maybe he should just be a cinematographer yeah Mm. Get back in your lane, Ariaster. Back in your lane, Ariaster. Go faster, Ariaster, because I'm after you. <laughs> Rivalry. Rivalry. <laughs> oh, God. All right. Well, now it's time to turn our attention to the franchise that just can't stay out of production. It's Evil Dead Rise. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Back yeah, to backing this... me on the horrors, huh? Yeah, this is the last horror. This oh, last latest one. film. Okay. Yeah, I think so. This. So it was this. Bo is Afraid and Little Mermaid? Yeah, those are the horrors. Yes, okay, cool, cool. The the terrible triple bill Mm. of people not knowing what they want and it causing trouble. (laughs) Actually, unfortunately, in Evil Dead Rise, everybody knows exactly what they want, which is brains. Yeah, Not quite. Uh, This latest film comes after plans for a sequel to Army of Darkness was scrapped, shame, and a direct sequel to Evil Dead 2013 was cancelled, no shame, uh, and (laughs) after the cancellation of the Evil Dead TV show. Didn't watch it. Could be a shame. Mm. Let us know if it's a shame, everyone. (laughs) <laughs> this is basically a standalone effort directed by Lee Cronin, who made a, apparently a very good horror movie called The Hole in the Ground, which I did not see, but was well received by most. Um, the story concerns a little family led by young mother e- um, Ellie, uh, played mm-hmm. by Elisa Sutherland, who's kind of a fun kind of punk rock kind of mum, who is visited by her sister Beth, who has just become pregnant and isn't really sure how she feels about that. 
Then a mysterious force enters the apartment complex and possesses Ellie, putting her children and sister in danger. Before we get into anything, I must confess that my viewing experience of this film was far from optimal. The rear speakers of the screen were not working, and the audience were not well behaved. Um, Mm. But even in spite of those distractions, I think it is fair to say that I was kind of underwhelmed by Evil Dead Rise. Um, I'm a huge fan of the Sam Raimi films, and although this film has the mischievous uh, meme streak to its gore and its fright sequences, the humor and lo-fi style that made those films so memorable, charming, and scary are all lacking here. Put in and, and in its place, you've got the usual kind of sheen that modern mm. horror, all too big budget modern horror, all too often has. There's no texture; everything just feels sure. template, and that's always very disappointing. The whole thing is invigorated by Alyssa Sutherland, who plays the possessed Ellie, um, who gets a very memorable f- performance. You know, and certainly commits. She's a lot mm. of fun and has this kind of iconic look of her sort of red hair yes. and pallid skin. It's um, yeah. very distinctive. Um, and she's clearly having fun in the role as being, yeah, this kind of mother figure turned bad. And mm. yeah, the film does a fairly good, if somewhat obvious job of introducing the family and the tensions between them before, you know, doing the horror movie thing of making those tensions literal and having the family mm. actually start literally tearing each other apart. Um there's a fearlessness with that, which is kind of commendable, and where it ends up going is certainly quite horrific and quite commend- quite in- interesting. Um, there's a fair amount about family bonds and motherhood anxieties, but none of it really transcends what you would hopefully expect from a typical horror film, which most people do realise you know must actually be about something. Mm. Um, it's certainly distressing, though, to see this close-knit little family who care for each other torn apart by this evil force and you know handley it handley invokes that sinister feeling that used to really get to me as a kid the childlike fear of seeing a parental figure acting out of character Mm. and the sort of desperation and hope that they might go back to the way you want them to be it has it has an edge you know the meanness of the original movies sure um and it is nice to see the franchise leave the cabin in the woods and find new life because the whole horror sequence is set within an apartment uh complex but very specifically one floor of that complex okay and it reminds me of Scream 6 in that respect. It's a nice change of pace. I just, I didn't get that excitement or chill that I want from a horror mm. film. Um, perhaps this one does merit a rewatch in better conditions, but right now I just don't feel very excited about the prospect of seeing it again. Um, so I wonder if it will find its place in the long-term memory of horror fans, or if it's just going to be yet another footnote to the legacy of the original film, and it's still never bettered first sequel. Yeah. Um, I have to give it three stars, though, because it's a sight better than the two stars I've been giving out so far fine, in the show. So fine. <laughs> there's, there's, there's potential it's there. Possible. But it's possible. I, I, I look forward to see. No, I, that's the problem. I don't look forward to seeing it again, but I shall. I shall see it again just to see how it sits on a second viewing. Maybe I'll be issuing. You can downgrade it then. I might be issuing a big uh, apology on the next, uh, the next <laughs> episode. No, I won't allow it. Oh, no. Yeah, Jen. I'm giving this one a three stars. Jen's one of those people who really respect people who stick to their convictions, no matter how pig-headed or foolish they were. It's um, it's weakness to change your mind or apologize. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I thanked Jen Viking for reminding me of that. Mm. Well, I thanked her once, but she insists that that means I've always thanked her. Yeah, mm. with your loyalty. I'm very loyal. I'm just not very mm. smart, like a dog. <laughs> <laughs> Good, you're like a lovely little Labrador. A lovely little review dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my lovely little review dog <laughs> what breed of dog would that but be a review dog. <laughs> what breed would that be one of those annoying little yappy things i think 
if you're asking me what breed I think would what breed of dog would review films, is that your question? <laughs> yes, that's my question, Jen. Please take it very seriously. Like a Via Marana for some reason. I don't know why it's I think it's because you could I, I feel like a Via Marana with glasses on would look funny. That does look quite good. Yeah, that, beautiful that, dogs. Good, and I think one dog. of them sitting up smart with a pair of glasses on in the cinema would go down well. Small dog wouldn't work because they wouldn't be able to sit in the cinema seats. <laughs> Um, it's time for something very, very silly. This is mm. hypnotic. Okay. Hypnotic is Robert Rodriguez's new film, and mm-hmm. it's a high-concept thriller in which a police officer played by Ben Affleck is, hunt- mm. is haunted by the disappearance of his daughter. He's brought into conflict with a mysterious man played by William Fickner, who seems to have the ability to instantly hypnotize people, Darren Brown style, and he's Ooh. using these powers to pull off elaborate heists, but then he starts coming for Affleck as they become engaged in a deadly game of cat and other cat. So, <laughs> of hypnosis. <laughs> of hypnosis <laughs> in theaters now. So Rodriguez originally wrote this film back in 2002, and it really shows. Wow. The film has everything in common with those straight-to-DVD Matrix knockoffs of the early mm. noughties that would be called stuff like Remissance, <laughs> Extreme, just yeah. <laughs> absolute nothing. The, the era of mind-bending thrillers where nothing is as it seems, the ground for which the groundwork for which was laid by excellent films like Strange Days, The Usual Suspects, Fight Club, Memento, mm-hmm. and most directly in this case, Minority Report, which is very okay. clearly invoked at several t- points in this film. So it's a high concept thriller. What is the high concept? People exist in this world who have the ability to influence people very intuitively to the point where you can give them a vague instruction and they'll go do it. They're psychic, basically. They sure. have the psychic ability to control people um, and make them either do what they want them to do and see what the person wants them to see. So what mm. potential does that have? Well, we have a bad guy who can turn literally anyone around into a sort of zombie. Okay. So you can do that kind of action scene or just, you know, vaguely encouraged. Um, and then there are, yeah. Then the bad guy starts using his powers on our main character. So we have the uh, the potential for some Inception style reality mm. bending as he sort of, you know, chain- bends buildings Okay. And has them sliding around and railways in the sky. And, you know, the effect of these moments is that occasionally the characters will see things like that and just go, oh, that was weird. And they just carry on with what they were doing. Sure. For the first two acts, these powers are completely underutilized and have very little impact on the overall story, which could easily have just been told of just standard goons with guns. Sure. And then in the third act, the powers do become important and we get some gotcha style reveals like, haha, what you just saw wasn't real and that person wasn't really <laughs> the person you saw. But by that stage, you'll be so uninterested in the story and characters that you'll just <laughs> stop caring what's real and what isn't. If you can't trust anything, even the experience yeah. of our main character who are, who or who they are, actually are, because the idea that he might have wiped his memory gets introduced. So obviously okay. you think, okay, so he's going to be, you know, this character they're all looking for. You know, then anything can be mm. a mind trick. So why get invested? Yeah, it's true. You need There's, to um, keep yeah. someone reliable. Well, if nobody's impressed... You, exactly. You need somebody reliable. One person yeah. needs to be the constant, the audience surrogate. One so that... guy who just can't be affected by these mind powers. So he's the yeah. one... Well, <laughs> they do say that. They They say that because you have some sort of psychic barrier you've got to look i love these movies when they have to get into the specifics of it it's like you've got a very special barrier caused by the trauma of losing your daughter which means you're immune to that but it's just you're obviously thinking well hold on none of this is real 
because yeah. that's the most obvious thing to do here is none of this is real and also it looks ridiculous therefore it would make sense if nothing is real and so <laughs> that just happens but there's a moment in this film early on where a joke is told a joke <gasps> that will be i know it's a joke and it's a joke that will be familiar to fans of robert rodriguez's early work because it's the joke that quentin tarantino tells in okay. desperado a movie very dear to the heart of any action fan who grew up in the 90s and it's just it's so disappointing to think about Desperado during Hypnotic. A mm. film so steeped in style and texture was Desperado. A silly little action film. Yes, mm. but one that just built its little world, a modern western Mexican town, and played out its graceful action between sexy characters. You know, Antonio mm. Banderas and Salma Hayek. And Steve Buscemi, sexy actors. <laughs> sexy. Sexy. Between the characters. order there. <laughs> With wit and verve between them. You know, just life mm. and then by contrast this is so cold and arbitrary and dated and my god ben affleck is dull i think <laughs> you forget this somehow because he occasionally yeah. does i don't know if he does good work but he attaches himself to a good project mm. i don't know if he's ever been great but my god when he's bad he can be terrible um and as the film yeah, yeah. does he have famous parents or something no he he, he doesn't do you know, if we want to be uncharitable what it is is he was friends with matt damon oh <laughs> yeah so, i fancy being uncharitable yeah so no. he, he kind of hung around with matt damon and matt damon is good yeah, look you know what <laughs> kudos to him that's better than just having rich parents who get you into right at least you had to get that jobs, friend by yeah. your own merit yeah and keep that friend yeah they were the only two yeah. attractive men in you boston i'll give him that <laughs> <laughs> so they had to come together yeah by yeah. contrast, yeah, so this is just, yeah, this is just dull. As the film reveals itself further, it becomes more and more absurd without becoming any more fun. Uh, mm. The only real joy to be had is laughing at it, but it's not innovatively stupid enough to... So very soon it, it wears out its welcome and becomes quite generic, genuinely soporific. I felt oh. really quite authentically sleepy during this film. <laughs> and I weirdly, I thought that and thought, huh, that was strange. And then I looked into it and some of my other critics also confessed that it felt sleepy during the film, so... <laughs> Oh, maybe maybe you've been brainwashed. Maybe the whole maybe. point is that you've been hypnotized. <laughs> maybe it was a brilliant film and they've hypnotized all critics to not to fall asleep during it so that they can't yeah. report back for some reason. Uh, have you checked your bank account? Do you have any <gasps> money left? Oh, Robert Rodriguez! Mm-hmm. Mm. It was so easy in the end. They knew we'd come for mm-hmm. the Ben Affleck action. <laughs> it's actually the most brilliant brain-conforming movie that you've ever seen in your life, but nobody will see it because it's so bad. <laughs> if everyone had everyone would definitely vote the right way in the next election it's a shame yeah. really yeah shame. there is actually shame. one hilarious moment where they're talking about how this shadowy cabal of hypnotic people are um secretly controlling events all around <laughs> the world and there's this bleary-eyed conspiracy nut talking them through it mm. and on the wall is a brexit headline <laughs> thereby implying that the shadowy cabal convinced all of the british people to act against their own interest and vote for brexit so that's good point that's for that good point yeah. for that movie give him a whole star just for that <laughs> i'll give you a star for that yeah that's the only one you're getting because you're terrible right now just that the I one have... star was it then yeah just one star oh, okay yeah now that i have fully exhausted myself talking about the big mostly underwhelming or outright terrible big movies of the month <clears> it's <throat> my turn to turn my tired brain to the fantastic truly amazing transformative films that you may have missed in may because Yay. my god it was an incredible month so let's see what I can come up with about Return to Soul. 
Return to Seoul. Seoul. Like Seoul, like the capital of South Yes, Korea. which apparently mm. every other country in the world pronounced Seoul. Seoul, interesting. Yeah, well, they're wrong. Say Seoul. I don't know how they pronounce yeah, it in Korean. <laughs> apparently it is Seoul. Oh, yeah, heard, that makes sense. Nah, Seoul. 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 Yeah. You get two letters out of an English person. <laughs> Seoul. <sighs> yeah. Paul, Davey... you're in Seoul. Paul in Seoul. Paul. Uh, Davy Chow directs this mm-hmm. film, uh, this drama film about a young woman named Freddie who is visiting um, so- uh, is visiting Seoul. And mm-hmm. she was born in Korea to Korean parents, but she was given up for adoption by a French couple. Um, by a French couple? To a French couple, I thought. But sure, then, I see what you mean. You the French right? couple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. the Korean it. family gave her up. A French couple adopted her. Sure. Uh, she grew up in France and doesn't even speak Korean now. Um, mm. However, she decides on a whim to sort of reach out to her birth parents. Um, after a brutally awkward first encounter with her birth father and his family, she attempts unsuccessfully to reach out to her mother. Um, and the film then moves forwards, picking up with Freddie on her birthday at key stages over the better part of the next decade of her life as, mm. she try- as she finds herself returning to Seoul for one reason or another. This is incredible. This is a really astonishing film. Um, let's start with uh, Jimin Park as Freddie. Um, she's presented as this bold character who, in one very breathtaking sequence early on, completely eschews societal norms by bringing together all of the people drinking in, in a bar into a big group. She just sort of mm. fearlessly gets them all around the same table, all these different groups of people who are sort of minding their own business and just demonstrates that she's a bit frightening, but fearless, <laughs> kind of big and unpredictable and fascinating. Sure. You're looking forward now to seeing what she's going to do. But she has this drive she does in spite of her coolness and her kind of lack of inhibition she does have this drive to kind of want to know her family and where she came from Mm. and as she engages further with them we do see her change we see her relatable frustration with the desperation and sorrow from the family who in this really keenly observed and quite heartbreaking way are just so ashamed of the actions and so deeply awkward around her Mm. that there's just no potential for an honest conversation to happen um, and her subsequent transformation is subtle and very believable. You never completely lose who Frankie is or your sympathy or interest in her as she starts to, frankly, spin off the rails. Um, mm. Then you've got the supporting cast who are wonderful. People move in and out of her life over the time, but you've got these really good performers who, in a very small amount of screen time, manage to create a really robust sense of a life and a world existing outside of the little episodes that we're experiencing. Mm. Uh, and just singling out one, I want to talk about uh, Guka, Guka Han, who is Freddie's uh, interpreter, who she meets right at the beginning of the movie in a hotel and is completely unprepared for her frankness and her openness and mm. is, um, you know, a, a very sort of solidly, you know, Korean mindset that she has and is rather unfortunately going around and softening all of the things that Frankie <laughs> says. Okay. So and sometimes to an absurd degree, like when the pet that the parents sort of says to Freddie, you know, we want you to come and live here in, in um, Seoul. And Frankie just says something like, forget it. You gave me up. You know, you clearly don't care about mm. me. And then, um, the, the friend just translates it to she'll think about it <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. And it's just so unable to understand the bluntness of Frankie. 
Um, and the film does present this idea of a very familiar, possibly even cliched difference between East and West, where the Koreans mm. are reserved and proper and very devoted to family and civility, but with this hypocrisy just beneath the surface, mm. whilst Frankie, you know, is quintessentially French and so is none of those things, just an awful, <laughs> terrible hooligan of a person. But she has great cheese, so... She has great cheese and she's very attractive, so the so world gives go. her a Who's pass. Winning? exactly (laughs) um she's just you know she's very open is what she is in Mm. every way um and that causes you know tensions with um the people she encounters in korea um but if this feels too straightforward from what i'm saying then more radically the film just refuses to make straightforward value judgments about any of these Mm. people they're all unfulfilled her openness does not necessarily make her happier than the people who are stuck in their own situations it's just you know everyone is dismissive but also curious about what the other side is like you know so everybody's kind of yearning for something that is out of both of their grasps Mm. um and then you've just got seoul and uh gunsan uh the Mm. city where the father lives and Chao's style is really intimate but with this tremendous flair the fashion alone Mm. makes this feel like a science fiction film in places like if you look at the poster for the film it looks like you know this kind of cyberpunk story that's going on and it's worth do so and you can also appreciate just how gorgeous freddy is um yeah and it's just it's really fabulous and sometimes it feels like a science fiction film other times it feels like a period piece as she heads into the country and is spending time in these homes and you know on this beach that means a lot to the father you know the director chow stays close to his actors faces but is also it's also just a masterpiece of composition. There are scenes and mm. moments of this film that are so vivid, it feels like I just saw it yesterday instead of weeks ago. Cool. Yeah. You seen that poster? Yeah, I have. Very it's cool. very good. It's very cool. Yeah, very um, good. It's about family and how your family directly relates to your sense of identity, to your values, to your life's direction, to the kind of person you are and might want to be. It's not warm like a Coriander film, but and nor mm. is it easy, but it's a really bold work of empathy and one that's just rich in humanity and it has a final sequence that is just one of the most impressive Mm. heartbreaking but also beautiful things that i've seen in a long time so i'm giving that all five stars cool very nice this sounds great this is potentially the first no i'd watch guardians of the galaxy oh god yeah (laughs) and i'd watch you know what i would watch fast x For the stupidity. I mean, the yeah, thing about Fast X is very forgiving about that kind of film because I know what it is. I feel like I think I know what it is. It, it stopped escalating itself too much because, like, Fast Night. I can't believe we're back on Fast. Fast <laughs> Eight had the famous thing with the submarine, where there's a car chase with a submarine, uh-huh. and then the the ninth one had them go to space. Yes. And with this one, they kind of scale it back, but they just oh god, the number of storylines is what's so ridiculous about that one. Yeah, maybe I yeah. should just watch one of the other ones. I think what I want yeah. to watch is Fast and Furious, the Fast and the Furious, or whatever the first one's called, and yeah. then Fast X, and just watch. Oh, that would be a hell of just, a thing. You'll yeah, be exactly. utterly baffled. But I, I actually yeah. did that. I watched Fast X, then travelled home and watched the Fast and Furious for the podcast, mm. and it was whiplash. Yeah, <laughs> like nothing you've yes. ever felt. Like I have seen the first one before, of course. God, these movies but, uh... used to be about cars. Yeah, they did. <laughs> they used to just put NOS in there and be like, Vroom. Oh, they put NOS in. God, NOS gets said about 50... NOS gets said in this, in that one the same way family gets said in the new ones. <laughs> I forgot. Oh, God. Yeah. Beautiful. But uh, I would also watch Return to Soul. See all. Yeah. See all. Can I tell you about a beautiful gay drama film? Yes, you can. Please do. Because we're going from South Korea to Morocco. This is the Blue ah. Kaftan. Oh, 
yes, I thought you I wanted heard to it. see this one um, during Flair this I year. I think it was at Flair and LFF, weirdly. Was it? I think I it was. Remember, I don't remember. Anyway, I remember it being at Flair and I remember it mm. coming up as an option, but it clashed with something else that we saw. Yes, that's or right. It was one of those. It was one. Um, it made my short list. But yeah. it fought, unfortunately didn't work out. Well, this one made my shorts left. Oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. They're going to kick me out of sight and sound. They are. <laughs> kick you out of sight and sound. Oh, yeah. Home and heart. <laughs> that's why, they, they that's why we call it that. And then they, they kneecap you. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is Mariam Tuzani. I'm so sorry, everyone. I'm so sorry, Mariam Tuzani. Um, Mariam Tuzani directs this romantic drama film about a couple, um, mm. ostensibly. I, I, Yeah, it's really weird to call it a couple because it kind of overlooks the gay element. But it is a film about Mina and Halim. Mm. Halim is a master tailor in a very old-fashioned style, the Arabic name for which I have shamefully forgotten. It's said about 50 <laughs> times in this movie. It's a beautiful word. Bespeaking an old craftsman of clothes, sure. of um, wedding caftans in particular. And his craft is a dying one, with his mm. um, customers wanting clothes faster and in a, in a more chic style. And his advice about the beauty of a loose-fitting bridal caftan that glides across the skin, uh, breathing and dancing, um, is are dismissed with a curt, that's fine, but make it a little tighter anyway. Sure. Mm. Um, he is supported in this and every other endeavour by his wife, whose health is starting to fail. And into this situation walks Yusuf, a young man who wants to learn the trade and develops an immediate mutual attraction with Halim. Mm. So the tender nature of the story here recalls Salim Sadiq's um, gorgeous film, Joyland. I think that yes. I, I got quite a bit from that because similarly, this is not your typical tragic gay story with the horrors of living under a tyrannical regime and the terrible artifice at the heart of a marriage between a gay man and his beard. Essentially, mm. it's not it's not going to be that fraught kind of, you know, horrible experience. Instead, this is a film about the profound understanding and love that can exist between three people who are brought together by circumstance mm. and the little world that exists between them you know, in the shop and in the um, apartment that they share. It's just a very rich and beautiful space to spend time in. And that isn't to say the threat is ignored because Yusuf, mm. Yusuf is, um, he's, he's practicing as a, as a gay man. So he's, um, he's making use of a local bathhouse um, sure. in order to do so, which he goes to. And um, yeah, there's, there's this implied understanding and almost permission given by the people operating the house, because there's this kind of very natural way in which he, kind of hooks up with guys there and sort of goes to the shower sort of sure. cubicle which is then lockable from the inside um so there's this there's the, there's a way of doing things mm. but then there are also guards on the street and nosy neighbors who peer out of you know the windows looking for her arm you know so mm. the film the heart of the film is the three lead performances we start with uh lubna azabel uh best known for denny villeneuve's incendies uh mm -hmm. plays mina and must have undertaken some pretty intense physical regime to appear as gaunt as she is in the film. But she's <laughs> she's just this beautiful and tragic soul um, that appears as this radiant but immovable presence. There's also just, mm. I don't know, you get such a sense of her. There's a scene where they go to a, a little indoors uh, like eating area that's like garden furniture set up inside of a garage kind of feel. Mm. 
and it's a very sweet space. But she, they go there to watch a football game, and she just yells "goal" for the <laughs> when the opposite team scores because she's just happy <laughs> there's a goal, and everyone's just like, "What's with her?" And then she and her, and and Haram just and Halim just start laughing, yeah. at having done that, and it's just <laughs> it's very charming. And then yes, you have got uh, Sally Bakri as Halim. Mm. Uh, with his avuncular mustache and gentle manner. <laughs> he's very old-fashioned, but incredibly passionate about his work. Um, he's mm. a very reserved man who occasionally comes alive in these moments of humor and sadness, you know, to demonstrate the depths that are running beneath his cool exterior. Um, mm. And together they just demonstrate a shared connection and understanding, this really unique sense of humor and the weight of the years that they've spent together. And in spite of the pragmatism at the heart of their relationship, you know, that this needs to happen to keep up appearances, they are just, for me, one of the all-time screen couples. I just really loved the way mm. that they were. They were just good friends. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, completing the the third part, you've got Ayub uh, Mizoi. But he's here and uh, he's hot. Um, oh nice good he plays like the romantic that. scenes well and he doesn't go too big when he needs to be because mm. he's the youngest one and he's the one who's sure. most unfamiliar with the situation so he's sometimes going to be the audience surrogate he's going to be shocked or mm. outraged at what's going on but he does so with some sense of restraint and it's it is the least demanding role of the three but it's because he is kind of a device for her limb but nevertheless mm. it's still a very believable kind of sexual tension that builds between the two which is very exciting um, and I just loved how vividly Morocco is presented. Mm. The constant activity of the city outside their window. During the day, there's a barber across the street who blasts his music to try and draw in customers, mm-hmm. which he never seems to succeed at doing. <laughs> he just stands outside of his shop smoking with his boombox on a stool next to him as his neighbor shouts at him. You've got, you know, then at night you've got the distant sound of talking, traffic, dogs barking, and of course the call to prayer that happens throughout the day. Mm. It just. I don't know, there's just something really beautiful about the way in which the sense that the place is invoked. Um, the bathhouse, when Halim enters and orders soap, you know, no pro- he orders soap, no product, and they just, they get a, a, a like a, <clears throat> a liquid soap that looks like treacle and smear it onto this um, clear plastic sheet, fold it over mm. and hand it to him, and that's his soap. Wow. And it's just, there's something so that feels so well observed about that. It's just, it's like a holiday, mm. this film. But of course, it is also a drama, and there's Mm -hmm. some very poignant developing story at its heart as Mina's health starts to deteriorate and Halim and Yusuf's relationship intensifies. But this isn't the film that's going to have the big shouty scene where everybody, you know, everybody says exactly what they're thinking. Instead, it builds to this wonderful climax, a quiet and really fitting act of rebellion that did bring Mm -hmm. a tear to my eye. Um, It's really beautiful, and that perhaps could be, you know, it could be accused of being perhaps a little sentimental, um, but it's yeah. it's firmly grounded in its setting and its characters, and it just feels like this really small but completely sincere story that I loved. So it's five stars. Oh, wonderful. Very yeah. nice. And I'm glad cool. we didn't see it at Flare, because otherwise we would have held back that review for our Flare episode and no one would have heard about it. <laughs> <laughs> we will talk about the things we saw at Flare at some stage, but frankly... Will we? What did will we, we see? What did I we see? I can't remember, though. Can't remember. We saw the no, one I about the remember. French guy. <laughs> Narrow it down a bit. We saw Horseplay, the mm-hmm. French guy one, where he goes back to his town and falls in love with oh, the son yes. of the guy... Yes. Um, he used to have a well, relationship he, with. He, he that doesn't happen. He meets the son of the guy he fell yeah. in love with. That's it. He doesn't, that, he doesn't yeah. fall in love with. Um, and then the third one. And we Old saw the documentary. The documentary, documentary about the, uh, the porn uh, community. The Swiss porn group. Radical yep. porn group. 
somehow we've not spoken about that yet here yeah. on the podcast, but okay, we will good. get around to it. We might wait until these movies swing around and become available, but we shall talk. Yeah. <sighs> okay, so that's the blue calf down. It's, yeah, five stars. Great. Moving on. From Morocco to the Italian Alps. Mm. It's the Eight Mountains. The Eight Mountains. The Eight Mountains. It's the story of two men who grow up together in the mountains, uh, build a house there together and sort of get involved in each other's lives, then drift apart as Pietro uh, moves away to try and explore the world and Bruno uh, stays behind to start a farm and a family. And at Mm. various points over the next four decades, they come back together and reconnect. Um and sort of compare how their lives are going. So the real power and poignancy of the piece is wrapped up in this eponymous metaphor of the eight mountains, which is taken from Buddhism and Indian cosmology. Mm. Um, And basically, if you imagine a circle and it's divided by lines, like a pie chart, into eight equal slices, those slices are the eight mountains of the world. And in life, you can either travel around the outside of the circle, experiencing the base of each of the mountains, or you can climb to the very top of one of them. And at the end of okay. the journey, who shall have lived the richer life? The person who explored all of the eight mountains or the person who thoroughly explored the one they started at? Sure. And you can see how that metaphor kind of translates to, you know, the traveling lifestyle versus the sort of settling lifestyle. Mm. So Pietro is traveling around the eight mountains. You know, in his childhood scenes, we experience him starting, we experience him starting to pull away from the family and crave his own path. Bruno, Mm. meanwhile, is estranged from his family at the beginning and soon becomes entangled and kind of adopted by Pietro's family as Pietro's pulling away from them. So he kind of becomes a surrogate son for them. And both men end up craving the lives denied to them and the lives that the Mm. other has and spend their time trying to find the peace that they crave. Um, The roles are Luca Marinelli Marinelli, and Alessandro Mm. Borghi. And they Mm. do fabulous work playing the same characters across a long period of time, demonstrating how they mature, how they experience heartbreak, disappointment, and, you know, how good things happen to them, bad things. And they change without losing track of the essence of the character. So you can still tell at the end that it's the same guy you started with. Mm. Um, And the friendship between them becomes a lifeline that connects them to their roots, but also to the outside world, respectively, and of course, to each other. Um, yeah, because they both cherish the past that they share as life continues to sort of pull them apart and make that past more and more difficult for both of them. And it's just beautifully shot. There's these incredible shots of the Alps and the mountains that these Mm. guys have grown up in. Although, interestingly, the film does call out the exoticism of those landscapes. At Mm. one point, Pietro comes to the house that he and Bruno have built together with some friends. And one of the friends talks about how beautiful nature is and how he wishes he lived around nature. And Bruno, who's lived here all his life, chastises him and asks him, what what exactly is nature? Point to the bit of this that is nature. Because, you know, city people are always talking about nature. And, and, Mm. you know, he says, well, you know, what, what do you call it? And he says, well, that's a mountain. That's a meadow. That's a river. That's a road. You know, it's something I can call it something I can use. Yeah. You know, something that I know what it is. And what the point is that he was romanticizing and reducing his entire world down to just a flavor sure. of landscape. And it's it's wonderfully well observed, but also just really indicative of the distance growing between the two men as they diverge in their journeys around the eight mountains. Um, mm. So that one is also five stars. I really cool. love that one. Just an yeah, epic. Yeah, sounds very good. Friendship epic. Cool. Yeah. Very nice. <laughs> Oof. Now we're off to bloody rural Tunisia. Wow. Ah, okay. God almighty. Yes, this is Under the Fig Trees. 
Oh, yes. I feel like I also <laughs> saw... Was this LFF? Could have been. Yeah. Yeah, it could have been. It's um, a group of I workers. Like heard, yeah. It's okay. about yeah workers working in a fig orchard, I want to say. Whether they grow yeah, figs. Why yeah, why not? Orchard of figgery. A figgery. A figgery diggery do. And yeah, it's a group of workers. The movie starts and they get picked up at the side of the road by this rundown truck that is barely large enough for them to sit in. And mm. one of the characters does recall that one of the other operators of one of these trucks actually would fill the bed with water so that the people wouldn't sit down and therefore you can fit more walk, uh, workers in. Wow. So it's not great conditions, but they are driven up to the orchards in the country to pick figs for the summer harvest. And we follow them from sunup to sundown across a single day in their lives. And we experience their work, their play, their food, love, gossip, drama. Um, all mm. the while their boss the, and paymaster sort of watches on and attempts to exert his will over the workers. Uh, the director is, I'll mispronounce the name, uh, Eriji Sahiri. Um, Sahiri? Yes. Yep, Sahiri, Sahiri sounds good. Eriji, probably not. It's E R I G E. Eriji. E R I G E. Eriji. 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 Eriji Sahiri. Sahiri sounds good. I'd, uh, we'll say Eri, Sahiri. Uh, it could be, it's Tunisian. It? Like, yeah. It could be um, pronounced any old way. Yeah. Any old way. Any old way. It's probably pronounced Paul. It's pronounced Paul. So Paul Sahiri is, um, mm-hmm. this is her fi- uh, fiction feature debut after she made some shorts and a previous documentary feature about train drivers. Um, mm. And the highlight of the film for me is when the workers break for lunch. Uh, they spread mm. their blankets across the soil and share what they've brought in their jars, po- pots and Tupperwares. Um, and the older pickers sit apart from the young, the men sit apart from the women, with one exception. Um, mm. And there's a great feeling of unguarded interaction between them as they talk. Well, as the young women specifically talk openly and honestly about relationships, marriage, work and social media, whilst the older women just sort of stare on and focus on their lunches. Mm. Then when things do have to kick off in sort of, you know, fights and squabbles between the characters, we come in close to our leads as the handheld camera makes the background sort of swirl and stutter around furious faces, really pulling you into the conflict, which tends to center around generally women fighting over men and the men fighting over money. Um, At least that's the pretext, because behind it all is the subtle but pervasive class system and gender inequality that the characters Mm. find themselves trapped in and ineffectually riling against. Um, but it's the kinship between them that really makes the film special. Um, performers are all incredible. That Naturalism is the name of the game here. It's this this has that documentary feel. You feel as okay. though you're eavesdropping on these people. You know, um, It's very matter-of-fact portrayal of people who might otherwise be portrayed with pity or lionization, but mm. they're just people who have a tough job, but do what they have to do and have lives outside of the job. And it's you know a really beautiful and interesting insight into that. Um, mm. Yeah, as well as insights into sort of westernization, modernization, that kind of thing. And it's one of those mm. rare enough films that makes you feel as though you've actually experienced some authentic impression of a part of the yeah. world. I'm going to go four stars on that one, I think. Okay. It's not quite, you know, sometimes these films suffer in comparison to others. But yeah, it's still, yeah. it's a really beautiful sort of conceit. I really like mm. the idea of a day in the life of these workers, just sort of observing them. But and for the most part, it does avoid that sort of anthropological feel to it. Sure. You know, it doesn't feel condescending in any way, but cool. Yeah, it's very good. <sighs> Could you review the next one? If I tell you what it's vaguely about, you just have a go. Yeah, go on. Yeah. Tell me the title. Uh, Polite Society. Polite Society is a film about how you should say your pleases and thank yous. Um, yeah. Because otherwise, you'll go to prison. 
Um, and <laughs> in that's modern Britain. And uh, I give it five stars because, yeah, <laughs> because you should say please and thank you. You absolutely should. Okay. Mm. Yeah, that'll do. Let's move on. <laughs> this is this is poli- that's the arty stuff out of the way, Jen. We've had a lot of arty stuff. I don't oh, know if you t- okay. if you could tell, but there were no car chases oh, in that last one at all. Yeah. Well, the last four, I've got some more actiony kind of films. Not quite okay. fast X, but we've got some mm. fun fun stuff. So we'll start with Polite Society. This is a comedy action teen drama from Nida Mansour, oh. a British Pakistani director with a self-professed love of Jackie Chan and Edgar Wright movies. And Fun. that's pretty much everything you need to know about the style of the film. Okay, But yeah. it's the subject where the film really comes into its own. Because we have Rhea, who is a teenager who dreams of becoming a stunt woman in the movies, like her hero, Eunice um, Ut- Ufart, I think. Um, better known, I hope, as the gladiator Blaze in real life. Because ah, okay. it's an actual real stunt woman. Um, who it speaks with a very thick Scouse accent. And I think at the end of the movie, writes back <laughs> to say that she's doing a Marvel. <laughs> and Rhea, Rhea makes her own videos showing off her various moves and stunts. You know, always qu- not quite managing to nail this sort of triple back kick thing that she's trying to mm. do. Uh, with the help of her older sister, Lena, um, who has dropped out of art school and is struggling with the whole struggling artist thing. Mm. Their lives change after an Eid party thrown by their rich, snobby neighbor Rahila, where Lena meets <laughs> and is wooed by her son, Salim, who is a charming geneticist. But Rhea is suspicious of Salim and Rahila, and with a little help from her friends, Clara and Alba, concocts a complex scheme to try and break them up. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's that a bit fun. It gets quite parent trap. And that, that little plot rundown bespeaks a very entertaining comedy film, the main beats of which you can probably start sort of, you know, charting out in your head. You know, the fun games mm. of the heist, uh, the setbacks, the eventual exposure of the plan, the subsequent all is lost moment that precedes the rally and the yeah. final caper. It's quite familiar stuff, but what I did not and shall not spoil for you is just how outlandish that becomes. <laughs> I'll, I'll keep some of that secret, but the style... You know, the film establishes earlier on, this is not going to be social realism. This is not going to be under the fig trees. It's bright, colourful, and quite playfully silly. There will be sort of carefully choreographed fight scenes with wire work in the school canteen between, you know, Rhea and the bully. Uh, The heists are going to involve silly disguises and awkward... uh, Okay. Awkward charisma check moments with sentries kind of Mm. things, that kind of feel. And when the two sisters finally do confront each other, you know, one of them is going to get kicked through a door <laughs> before the mum tells them to just stop it, clean up and come down for dinner. Okay. Fun. You know, it's it's silly kind of over-the-top violence, which is good fun. Mm. Um, and the big risk of telling a hyper-stylized genre-bending genre movie is that the emotional stakes get lost as the audience becomes mm. unsure of how seriously to take any of what you're showing them. But yeah, Polite Society is fortunately funny and charismatic enough to keep you invested anyway, but it also just never loses track of the emotional core of the story. Um, Because aside from Manzor's deft touch with the tone of the film, Priya Kansara as Rhea is the perfect center for this madcap adventure. Um, Mm. The stakes are her stakes. You know, you care about her. She is solid. That's what you're missing in Hypnotic is you didn't have that central relatable character. Sure. You know, Rhea is exactly that. And... It's just about the incredibly endearing relationship that she has with her sister. And even even when she seems to be wrong or behaving immaturely, you can't help but want what's best for her, you know. Mm-hmm. And 
she does have the odds stacked against her because she is disempowered by the society she lives in, which is a deeply patriarchal one, even when it's figurehead, the figurehead of that society is a powerful woman. Um, There are also little moments of interplay between British and Pakistani society, which is fun, but it just, it feels, it's pleasing just how rooted this is in the Pakistani community Mm. and its spaces, you know. Fun. That's a really good thing. And I saw the film many weeks after its release on a tiny little screen on Tottenham Court Road that was about half full um, with a fairly diverse but young London crowd. Mm. And they were laughing and cheering and just fully engaging with it as if it was, you know, a Marvel film. And they were just, you know, when a character appears and kicks another character, they're like, yay. And it's just, I think it's hard not to get swept away with it. It's a crowd pleasing good time that I think should be programmed alongside stuff like Scott Pilgrim and Police Story. Mm. So. I think, yeah, Nina Manzor has earned the company of her references. So it's, yeah, four four stars for that one. I really awesome. enjoyed it. Great. Yeah. Polite Society. That was a much better version. Much yeah. better film than the one I made up. <laughs> I don't know. It had something going for it. Felt like yeah. a Merchant Ivory kind of film. Yeah, yeah. Mm. My voice is being stifled, though. Yeah, it is. Right. Mm. By these young Pakistani creators. <laughs> There's a hegemony forming. And I'm actually a little in favour of it this time. Let's just try Yeah, it. yeah, me Let's too, just... me too. Hey guys, before we throw out the idea of a hegemony, why don't we just try a different one? White men, yeah. pretty lame. Let's try young Pakistani women. Yeah, let's um, let's try it. Might just work. Oh, Might wait, work. It's working great for all of us. Great. Move. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Perfect. Oh god! So yeah, that that's that's a good fun. I think that and Rye Lane make for a very good sort of oh, modern yes. British movie double bill, which nice. makes me very excited about the things happening here at the moment. Cool, <laughs> nice. Oh, and that's why we don't need Europe, but we do because across the channel in France, they're doing some pretty fun, silly things of their own because they have made a new adaptation of Alexandre uh, Dumas, his uh, swashbuckling classic, The Three Musketeers. Part one, D'Artagnan. 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 The first D'Artagnan. part of a, the first part of a two-part epic. The concluding parts of, part of which shall be named after the um, chief villainess of the book, mm-hmm. whose name I've always read because I'm a big fan of these books, um, but never, never had to Bad. say out loud. M R. Mm. It, it's spelled Milady. M I L A D Y. Uh. And some people have suggested that should be Melody. Or mm. things like that. Other people say uh-uh. it should be Milady. You know, it's it's strange. Anyway, yeah, yeah, Milady. The the next part will be Three Musketeers, Milady, and uh, she'll be with us later this year. The French are going to get it just in time for Christmas. I hope we do too, because this mm. it's going to be a perfect Christmas film if it comes out at that time. It's just it's exactly what you want at Christmas an undemanding Christmas adventure movie. Um, so I hope we get it. Otherwise, I might have to pop over. You'll you'll come and translate oh, yeah. with me, right? Yeah, yeah, I'll sit there and whisper it into your ear. <laughs> you just say it out loud. It's fine. The French love it. Yeah. So this is a fairly faithful retelling of Dumas' first Musketeer novel, a novel okay. that I must admit is very dear to me after my grandmother bought me this splendid copy of it. Oh, that's a lovely copy. It's a lovely the copy. Band it's... And it's got gold um, embossing and things. Yep, and it's also uh, 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 illustrated. Which is very Ooh, important for a little. What a lovely book! That's what so a lovely nice. Book for a lovely boy because that was given to me in 1999 when I was a mere lad <gasps> of ten. Oh, still got it with me. Lovely boy. And I, I, I fell in love with Dumas after that. I, you know, read the mm. other two Musketeer books and um, the uh, Count of Monte Cristo. It's just, uh, yeah, he writes really great yet. little adventure mm. stories and. Yeah. 
yeah, so the, the plot is very similar. We follow a young man named D'Artagnan who hopes to become a musketeer. We follow a young man named D'Artagnan who hopes to become a musketeer and he travels to Paris uh, where he quickly runs afoul of Athos, Porthos and Aramis, the three musketeers. Mm-hmm. and challenges all three of them to separate duels. And he ends up joining their ranks in a fight against the villainous Cardinal, Cardinal Richelieu and his mm-hmm. agent, Milady de Winter. Mm-hmm. So, that's the plot of the book. And this first film covers the entirety of what fans of the book will know as the diamond necklace sort of saga that takes up about the first half of the book and is the same place that Richard Lester split his adaptation back in the 70s when he made The Three Musketeers and then The Four Musketeers, two separate films sure. with Michael York as D'Artagnan and Oliver mm-hmm. Reed as, um, I think it's Porthos. Um, mm-hmm. It was good fun. Those those were very entertaining films. Um, <laughs> but so are these, because yeah, there, there are some new elements. We have a subplot where Athos is framed for murder, adding a okay. second slightly redundant ticking clock, but a bit more drama to, you know, grit to a story that can be a bit chamber Mm. chamber piece if you um allow it to be the drama of the movie sure. is retrieving a diamond necklace in time to prevent a uh, uh a royal affair being revealed you know it's, it's i was very surprised this was written in the middle of the 19th century it's just as <laughs> a see what as a see well no that'll be a spoiler for the next one i hope they do it though the thing that happens yeah. between um uh d'artagnan and um Mil- melody it's um it's, it's very saucy and fun anyway Ooh. Porthos is now mm. bisexual, which makes complete sense for Porthos, and we're all very happy about okay. that. Um, Aramis, meanwhile, uh, yeah, Aramis, meanwhile, still enjoy has a penchant for married women. Um, mm. They're a good bunch, uh, but most importantly, the film stays <laughs> faithful to the spirit of the scoundrels. novel. Um, they are scoundrels. That's the whole point. Like people yeah. always forget this about they, they they hear Three Musketeers, they think oh it's an old book, it must be really stately and like really you know yeah. decent stuff. They're just they're just absolute hounds. Yeah. <laughs> all three of them and it's really good fun to read about them people forget the great novels are great because they're fun to read yeah um, um mm. i don't think it does a disservice to the story to observe that a 180 year old novel has some dated aspects sure um the new gruff aesthetic where everybody looks really dirty and the action has a ridley scott style viscera is a little incongruous with just how morally righteous the musketeers always are <laughs> except sexually of course um yeah. but you know might is right when with the musketeers and you don't need to worry about you know whether or not they might be wrong and where they're flinging their swords Mm. but the thrill of the film is in the political intrigue and the spirit of adventure and that's still here you know swords fly and layers of deception are uncovered as the musketeers cut and thrust towards the conspiracy at the heart of their troubles um at the heart of the kingdom uh performances Mm. are very good uh you know capable um but with eva green proving the standout as the deliciously wicked melody who smokes a long pipe and smiles menacingly at people Mm. and i would be surprised if they go the way of the novel with her because she has already too much i don't want to say agency because she still is in the service of cardinal richelieu but mm. nevertheless she is still very much a, a much stronger character than perhaps she's been portrayed in the past um although i'm pretty sure she was played by in that dreadful american film i think they got um resident evil lass Yovovich to play her oh wow so i should probably watch that i bet it's stupid and fun but <laughs> I don't know if there is a truly great film to be made of The Three Musketeers because it's very much like Treasure Island. You know, the best sure. you're going to do if you really nail it is make a fun adventure film. You know, it's yeah. not going to reinvent the work, the anything. You know, they should do this with Muppets. Well, exactly. They should, they do, should do The Three, three Musketeers, Musketeers with Muppets. It's perfect. Yeah. Who would The Three Muppets? Uh, Muskets. The, the mus- Muppeteers. Yes. Who, yeah, who it would be th- called The Three Muppeteers, wouldn't right. it? Well, D'Artagnan, um, I think, is... Um, 
Oh, who's the narrator in uh, Treasure Island? Is that Gonzo? Gonzo. I think he's yeah. D'Artagnan. Okay. And he can have Rato with him. Um, yeah, just as because it doesn't, they don't all yeah. have to be actual characters. In the no, book. those two can kind of just both be the stand-in for D'Artagnan, probably. Yeah, and then um, Athos and then... is the man of faith, the okay. sort of um... Sam the Eagle. Yep, that makes sense. Then okay. you've got the lascivious, um, kind of uh, sleazy, hard-drinking, hard-loving um, Porthos. You're testing my knowledge of uh, <laughs> Muppets here. Tim, Tim Curry, he's a Muppet, right? Yep, Tim Curry's a Muppet, he can be that. Yeah. And then okay, you've got great. just the, uh, yeah, you've got Aramis, who is basically wait, kind of wait, just wait, like wait, wait. Paul Foss. Where's, where, do, where do Kermit and Miss Piggy fit in? Oh, Miss Piggy's oh no, no. Got, it's, she's got to be... They're the king and queen. Okay, yeah, okay. Kermit is the king. Okay. So, so uh, Miss Piggy's Does having Ms. Piggy an affair. Miss Piggy not get to be... Oh, oh okay. Miss cool. Piggy is having right. an affair with somebody. Um, who is uh, an English lord. I don't know who that could be. Um, and Kermit is going to find out. Maybe Ker- No, Kermit should be the English lord. He should be the tragic romantic character. Yes, he should. He yes. should. Piggy should, is married yes. to... I feel like that should be the only human in the movie, not Tim Curry. Yes, probably. Whoever she's married yeah. to. And it should be Michael Caine again, I think. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, make it Michael Caine again. <laughs> or, or um, no, it's a French movie. Make it, um, make it the guy who in this is playing Athos, um, Vincent... Cassell. Make it Vincent oh, Cassell. Vincent Cassell. Yes. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. very good. <laughs> See, we've done it. Where is your necklace? <laughs> well, should be here any minute. <laughs> well, there you go, folks. We've, we've You've it's stuck with us. Thing. If we hadn't talked about the blue caftan and under the fig trees, there's no way we'd have come up with the three um, Muppeteers. No, absolutely not. It takes that <laughs> deranged absolutely energy. Absolutely not. But yeah, yeah. Uh, three uh, three musketeers, really fun. I'm only giving it three stars because it's just a bit of fun. But you shouldn't underestimate. In fact, it's four stars. I'm giving it four because you shouldn't sure. underestimate how hard it is to make something something that's just fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Agreed. I'm looking forward to the next one. Nice. Speaking of <laughs> three musketeers, yes. Yeah, <laughs> Speaking of good innocent fun, it's Zizu. Zizu. Yes, Finland. The last few months of World War Two. The Nazis are being driven out in retaliation. They are salting the earth and taking whatever they can from the locals. But this time, they've taken something from the wrong man. Atami Corpi is a retired commando, still spoken of reverently by those in the know. He's He's not the man you give orders to. You just set him loose. In his in his retirement, he has become a gold prospector. But when a ruthless SS commander named Helldorf and his subordinate Wolf <laughs> take Corpy's gold and leave him for dead, his gold, his gold. But when you not even anything that actually matters, <laughs> he's taken gold, Jen, and they've taken it not off his him. daughter or his <laughs> dog. He doesn't have anyone. His he just has gold. his gold. And when his you beloved gold that he's fashioned into a wife, yep, put a little outfit on. <laughs> But when you leave a man like like Corpy for dead, you better make sure he stays dead. Because returning with furious anger, the unstoppable Corpy wreaks <laughs> dreadful vengeance on Heldorf and his men, seemingly fueled by nothing other than pure hate. There's a Finnish word for this kind of unstoppable white-knuckle rage, but it's not easy to translate. Sisu! 
is uh, <laughs> incredibly silly. Um, you'll know from the dramatic introduction of Corpy, which is like this low angle with um, mm. irreverent gaze that fetishizes his horrific scars that demonstrate mm. just how difficult to kill this man truly is whilst deep throat singing and dramatic drums play. It's, sure. it, it's really fun and cheesy. And de- uh, director Jalmari Hallander uh, cites First Blood as an inspiration but this is well beyond the downbeat realism of the first Rambo movie and has okay. far more in common with Rambo First Blood Part 2, where Rambo... like the In First Blood, Rambo John Rambo is a um, traumatized war veteran who's come back from mm. Vietnam and struggles to fit into regular society and ends up on the run again. A terrible indictment of the treatment of, Vietnam, of um, soldiers from the uh, Vietnam War by the American people. Uh, and in the second movie, John Rambo goes back and wins Vietnam all on his own. That's what this movie is. Sure. <laughs> it's it's the action that makes the film. The sheer gruesome inventiveness with which Corpy takes out his prey and also defends himself. Being chased mm. by dogs? Set yourself on fire and the dogs will want nothing to do with you. Easy. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> And the way he survives being hanged is one of the most uncomfortable things I've seen in a long time. Um, mm. I feel like my crowd could have been a bit more fun with some of this stuff because they no. they were being a bit reverent. And it's like, you know, this isn't a documentary, right? <laughs> How dare you laugh? My father was killed when a guy threw a landmine at him. <laughs> There's a lot of exploding Nazis in this one. If you want. Yeah. That's it's, you know we can always explode a Nazi on on film and it's you can always, always and as a result always, yeah. as a result of the exploding Nazis Tarantino comparisons are inevitable of course but there's something course. very Scandi about the whole thing for me there's a deadpan black humor that recalls Dead Snow which I believe was a sure. Swedish film I want to say mm. Norwegian I think um, mm. but it was another genre film that dredged up its nation's dark past for some cheap frills um, and I'm not against that this has a lot in common with the spaghetti western inspired world war ii films of the 60s and 70s or the british traditions of making trashy horror films out of the witch hunts you know it can be useful actually to make pulp yeah. fiction out of national memory it can be a good way of processing things that's why mm. i like spencer so much this sort of horror <laughs> movie about a national tragedy this is finland's spencer zizu zizu zubi zubi zu but you know I don't know how much there is to be made of the poignancy of this film. I think the sight and sound review kind of hit that quite hard. Is the idea that it's poignantly invoking a national tragedy. It's it's true that the film does... It feels like a great expression of national anger and well-placed anger at that. And mm. it's also just a film that wants to have fun turning people into lumpy jam. And I can't yeah. help but feel that the rest is either pretext or just very intuitive filmmaking. But it is, it, sure. it's a litany against bullies. Against occupying mm. powers, exploiting the people whose land they've invaded... And, of course, there's a lot of anxieties around Europe right now with that. So, sure. you know, and Finland does feel far better place to make a film about those anxieties than, say, America in the 80s when they were making invasion scare movies like Invasion USA or Red Dawn. And it's like, no, you're the invaders, guys. <laughs> this, this isn't yeah. going to work. Finland feels better place to make a movie about how, hey, guys who invade your country are dicks. Chuck a landmine at them. <laughs> this this feels sincerer and the nazis are always good bad guys especially yeah yeah if you want to put a knife entirely through one of their heads so it's Yay. it's four stars it was a really good film oh, very nice very nice ah <laughs> <laughs> oh. zizu 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 to you too my friend yeah. i only have one left <gasps> thank 
God. Yeah. Master Gardener. Master Gardener. Yeah, this is a weird bird. It's uh, it's a new film by Paul Schrader, famous mm. for writing Taxi Driver and Raging Bull mm-hmm. and directing mm-hmm. American Gigolo and Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters, mm. and who is currently enjoying something of a hot streak after the success of First Reformed and The Card Counter. Um, a streak that, unfortunately, this, f- this film may prove the end of. Um, <laughs> we meet Narvel Roth, who, uh, played by Joel Edgerton. He's okay. a horticulturalist working in a grand estate owned by Norma Haverhill played by Sigourney Weaver. And he's very passionate and talented at what he does, but he's clearly hiding some kind of dark past. He's a very built, solid, frightening-looking man. And it's obvious he's got something going on back there. Mm. It's Joel Edgerton, isn't it? It's Joel Edgerton, so he's not going to be a nice gardening man. He's not not exactly (laughs) Alan Titchmarsh. So he struggles further when Norma insists that he take on an apprentice, her wayward grandniece Maya, played by Contessa Swindell, previously one of the best things about Black Adam, who's mm-hmm. also incredibly hot, uh, who seems to be <laughs> seems to be a Can woman in trouble. Yeah, Contessa Swindell. Contessa... Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool, continue. Uh, who seems to be a woman in trouble, and you can guess the rest. Literally, the film yeah. from there plays out exactly as you think it's going to play out, and. But the film, the style of the film is very odd. It's very unnatural. The dialogue is incredibly artificial. And the performances have this sleepy glaze to them that's too consistent to be <laughs> accidental. Um, and the aesthetic takes some very odd, heavily stylized turns amidst a typically grey colour palette. So mm. are we then to take this as a stylistic exercise? And should that then forgive the very formulaic story? that would not be out of place in a straight-to-DVD Stephen Seagal movie. It's just like a drive-style experience where it's about the journey. It doesn't necessarily convince, because at this stage, it is actually quite formulaically Schrader. You know, we've got a lonely, task-oriented figure who struggles socially, but mm. has a passion they're very serious about, and a history of violence, but is reformed now, but then called upon to resolve the situation of a vulnerable party through violence. You know, yeah. it's so... <laughs> so familiar and even the subversion mm. of the trope isn't new for Schrader either you know first reformed does it better so mm. it's not without its poetic imagery the first you know shots of flowers blooming are beautiful and lead into the best parts of the film which is novel practicing his gardening and rehearsing lessons about the history of gardening in his journal which shall obviously recall first reformed um and early in the film you do find yourself wondering what this rigid schedule has been built to constrain within novel mm. and Edgerton is he's actually often very good he usually is mm. um he impl- he imbues the role with this great sense of quiet intensity whilst also demonstrating huge compassion he's not just your silent badass kind of role he's you know you can actually see the man he was creeping into the man he hopes to be without stereotypical like bursts of rage to demonstrate that mm. you know he's clearly the character who best represents Schrader's comfort zone out of all of the other characters and I do believe he struggles to write for his other characters convincingly especially the women yeah um you see what it turns out to be and it's not it's not too far into the movie that you learn this but Marvel is an ex-neo-nazi okay who was formerly a sort of hitman of the of that group chuck a landmine uh, chuck a landmine at him come on guys there's only (laughs) one way to deal with this but schrader thinks he has a different way of dealing with nazis and chucking landmines at them because edgerton is ashamed of his past and wants to redeem himself yeah it's 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 sweet but very familiar idea that okay you know 
but it's a cute idea that men in the alt-right are not beyond help. Yeah, yes, help. of course, of course. And that they may return yeah. to the fold of mainstream society. Mm. But the messaging is just kind of confusing and a bit simplistic because Narvel's breakaway moment, you know, which comes as he's asked to do something he's not prepared to do, is too easy. His redemption is too complete. Mm. And the film is lacking in any real insight into what drives men like him to the fringes of our society in the first place. And, you know, where they end up getting preyed upon by the greedy and the stupid. It's mm. it's it's nearly bizarre enough to be engaging, but at the end of the day, it just feels a bit hollow. Like, I saw people say mm. this is a noteworthy addition to Schrader's filmography, but I just don't think it is. I think this is a pretty weak link, and so I'm gonna get I'm gonna give it two star. Okay. Yeah. Well. Yeah. All right. Then. Whew. May was Oof. a good month. Yeah, sounds it. That sounds like a whole bunch of films I'd be interested in seeing. Yeah, really Fast incredible films. X, whatever that <laughs> last one was. <laughs> little mermaid so much good stuff and the one you just gave what hypnosis hypnosis all the bad ones (laughs) all the worst ones oh good stuff and you know we've got june around the corner and a brand new transformers film opening next week yay yay in which optimus prime must face off against a a new monkey transformer who i didn't realize until they put a marquee up in leicester square is called optimus primal that's so well, dumb this might be good well, yeah true true think of it positively but the question is which one of them is the optimal prime neither oh. um <laughs> jennifer fox <laughs> <laughs> jennifer fox megan's yeah. sister who's back for revenge yep yep jennifer yeah. who am i thinking of megan fox Me- there's megan fox and, and jennifer, jennifer saunders yes yeah, that was that it was thank it. you yeah very similar jennifer's body is she in jennifer's yes body? that's probably it yes there we go yep, there we go <laughs> no it was definitely jennifer saunders yeah definitely. you're right yeah <laughs> so seeing when she gets her norks out in uh, the titanic parody <laughs> <laughs> and transforms into a car that's the one my mum met jennifer saunders once oh lovely i bet she's nice your mum i've never met yeah. her i have met her she's a, she is nice yeah yeah yeah, my mum is nice. My mum is nice. Yeah. Jen's mum is nice, everyone. And Jen, how can people find out about mm. how nice your mum is? They can't. I'm, I'm, I, yeah. I mean, you can message me and I'll tell you. But uh, <laughs> apart t- from that... She'll tell you every time. <laughs> um, I'm still waiting for the episode you... of the podcast where we have your mum on. Instead of me. <laughs> <laughs> and instead of me. <laughs> this is your mum talking about some movies she's seen. Yeah, she watches a lot of stuff. She watches a lot more than I do. <laughs> yes, you can find out more about this show by going to Screen Mayhem on Twitter um, or potentially some other um, social the social media platforms potentially. of your choice. Potentially. Look around. Definitely on Twitter, though. Yeah. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at filmcriticpodcast at gmail.com. Oh. Um, if you want to get in touch with um, uh, my little film critic dog or whatever we called you little film dog your little film dog um uh you can uh tweet at paul at what's your i don't know oh salt? at salty film salty film that's it at salty, <laughs> salty film, film. <laughs> and if you want to get in touch with me you can't no because i'm busy talking to my mum oh such a good mm. such a good way to spend time yeah call your mum at jen blundell yeah um <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, uh, our theme music was by Jacob Lundell, and... You're hearing it now! 
You probably are hearing it now. Bye, everyone. Bye.